The National Archives podcast series, 50 years since the Sexual Offences Act. The Lives of Men from 1953 to the 67 Act, presented by Sammy Sturgis. This talk was recorded on the 22nd of July, 2017, at the National Archives, Q. Today I'm going to talk to you a bit about the lives of gay men in London in the 1950s and 60s. As we all know, this is the 50th anniversary of the Sexual Offences Act 1967, which partially decriminalised homosexuality for men in this country. So I'm only going to be looking at men because the law only considered men. It wasn't actually illegal for women to be homosexual, even though they didn't enjoy... Homosexual women didn't enjoy any greater freedoms than men did. So the 67 Act wasn't an all-encompassing solution to the issues of criminalised homosexuality in this country. The recommendations that Wolfenden put forward that then decriminalised homosexuality for some men actually only considered two men having sex consensually in private. So it wasn't an all-encompassing solution to the problem of the regulation of homosexuality in this country, but it was a huge milestone in the journey for campaigners and activists. So just like a little bit about the history of um, criminalised homosexuality in this country. In 1533, that was the first act, buggery act, to be passed that criminalised male homosexuality in England. The problem for men had been going on for some time before we get to the 1950s and 60s. And the Criminal Law Amendment of 1885 is actually the law that men had to live under in the 50s and 60s. And famously, we had the case of Oscar Wilde in the late 19th century that some of you are probably familiar with. But the terms under which men had to live, they're quite ambiguous. They're not, they don't define specific acts and were very much open to interpretation by the police officers, the divisions, the different police forces, and as to how they were actually enforced. And I'm going to look at London specifically, which I have done in my research, because as we're probably all aware, London at that time, and arguably still now, is the queer culture hub of this country, and therefore there's a lot more sort of evidence to go on in terms of research. And also, the police here, so the Metropolitan Police, when I refer to the police, is who I'm talking about, because that's the force that I've looked at, also had the Vagrancy Act of 1824, with which to arrest and prosecute homosexual men or offenders. Anybody that was out in the streets that they deemed to be idle or disorderly could be arrested. That, you know, could mean anything, couldn't it? And the testimony of Ronald Wright, which I looked at, which is actually available on YouTube, um, so I suggest you look it up because it's really, it's a really good watch, just short videos. He spoke about police treatment in the 1960s, and from the quote here you can see, they wanted, like, mad to book you, you could be just standing on a corner and you'd be done for loitering or soliciting, any excuse to grab you. And that sentiment was sort of echoed in a lot of the testimonies that I looked at. Just to kind of set the scene a little bit more for context, the post-war period in this country was a real period of social reform in general. The NHS was formed in, the 19, in 1948. There were reforms made to legal aid around the same time, so it made it easier for women to divorce their husbands, which had previously been unavailable to them. We had the Labour government, which gained power in 1945, and then all of the changing gender roles that came along with the, with the war and women's role in the war. So there was a real sort of 
mood of change in the post-war years. And in 1951, when the Conservative government, Churchill's Conservative government, um, got back into power, his vision for Reconstruction Britain was quite different to that mood of social change that had been happening in the late 40s. And the government wanted to build a nation of families to sort of reinforce this idea of like traditional, powerful Britishness and reassert Britain on the national stage. And homosexuality of any form did not fit into that vision. So it was a real threat to traditional gender roles and masculinities. In the early 50s, we saw this resurgence of persecution, for want of a better word, and the demonization of homosexuals in general, but specifically men, because the law was there for them to use in order to do that. And the law around prostitution was also reformed um, with the Wolfenden Report. And that was because since the war, there had been a real increase in crimes relating to prostitution. Now, whether that meant that there was more prostitution or there was just a bigger crackdown, I think there's some debate as to which was the case. And I think it was the same with the nature of homosexual offences. Leading on from that, the persecution that was sort of felt, there's, there's been a real like debate amongst scholarship as to whether there was a, a police witch hunt of homosexuals or whether the media just made everyone think that. There were, no doubt, cases in the media of high-profile members of society that led people to believe that the police were more active, and, and they were more active, but there just weren't the resources, I, I believe. There weren't the resources to, to systematically eradicate homosexual venues and, you know, culture in general. It just, it just suppressed things, and people culture changed fit around this this sort of um, new this new era of now word I'm lo- looking for is but um, so that there was this there was a moral panic essentially that was created by the media through cases like most of you probably heard of um, the case of Lord Montague of Bewley who was tried in 1953 and 1954 along with uh, Michael Pitt Rivers um, and Peter Wildblood and they were all convicted and imprisoned and putting high-profile cases like this into the newspapers fed into this demonization of homosexual men within society. Moving on to Wolfenden itself. So the Wolfenden um, Committee sat from 1954 to 1957 and was headed up by Sir John Wolfenden. It was appointed by the Cabinet in order to assess the laws relating to homosexuality and prostitution in response to the increased crime in the capital particularly, but using London as a shining beacon of example to the rest of the country. The report was published and it had multiple recommendations, not only in relation to the most famous one of the partial decriminalization of homosexuality, but also for the reform of policing, because there was such wide inconsistencies throughout the Metropolitan Police. That was picked up in, in this report. And I think, actually, what happened with Wolfenden wasn't what the government intended to happen. They intended for the Wolfenden Committee to find, perhaps similarly to they did with prostitution, that it needed to be more harshly regulated in order to prevent these crimes, and there needed to be greater access to mental health treatment for homosexual offenders. But actually what happened was it gave campaigners this platform with which to base their campaign for reform, for law reform. And... I think the uh, the home the home secretary was quite he was quite staunchly anti-gay and um, very homophobic, and I think 
I think it kind of backfired for him. Now we're going to move on a little bit more to the specifics of life for men in London. I, as I've mentioned, have, have looked at quite a lot of different oral testimonies. And one of the projects I used was called the Hall Carpenter Archives Oral History Group Project, um, Walking After Midnight, which is available in book form for anyone who's interested. Two of the testimonies that I use is a man called Bernard Dobson and there's a man called John Alcock. So Bernard surmised the sentiment quite well. In those days, you didn't come out of work because the institutions and establishments under which you worked were not accepting, and a lot of men found themselves being fired for the, for the, you know, the fact that they were gay. And I think that was throughout every testimony I looked at, everybody hid their sexuality from the hierarchy especially in the case of Donald West. So um, I listened to his oral testimony as part of a different project, but he was a psychiatrist. So to be a psychiatrist and to be homosexual in the 1950s was like not a thing that could happen <laughs> because in our time period, we see a shift ever more towards the medicalization of homosexuality and people believing that it was, it was potentially not criminal. It was a, a medical issue to be homosexual. So if his bosses had have found out, then he, you know, his profession would have been gone from his life. And he worked at the Maudsley Hospital, which is quite renowned for administering aversion therapies to cure homosexuality. Um, and he actually published this book in 1955, um, pleading tolerance for the homosexual plight and he wouldn't been able, have been able to do that if he, you know, if he hadn't have pretended to be straight. However, there were instances in my testimonies of certain professions where men found it possible to reveal parts of themselves to their colleagues and their friends. The case here um, of John, there were, he was, when he was in the Merchant Navy, there were 30 of us on ship. The queer men would always be together. We had cabins which were designated as ours, and he told quite a few nice little tales of when they used to go ashore and find, find other boys to play with. So then we move on to play. So in this I'm going to look at a little bit about the, the venues in London, sex and relationships. So in the 1950s with the crackdown in London there, were, there was this move of privatisation of queer venues which created this whole other issue of social access to um, venues. So you know, you needed the means with which to access these private venues. So they weren't open to everyone, which was a bit of an issue. So then we've got traditional sort of things that maybe people think about when they think of this time in London, the cottages or public toilets where men used to go to seek out sex and, you know, just for a way into queer life. And cruising sites, famous cruising sites, Hampstead Heath, Speaker's Corner, and... Polari, which I'm not going to say too much about, because Dan and Chris will elaborate on um, the secret language of Polari a little bit more later. But men use this language to communicate with each other, and it has since died out because there's no longer really a need for it um, amongst the gay community. Then it was a way to just kind of test the waters if you thought somebody was, you know, if, if, if somebody was on your wavelength, you could test it with a bit of Polari, and then it was easy to just slip in and out if they looked a bit confused. The one thing for me for all these testimonies was this overriding sort of feeling of, of sex. Everyone wanted to find sex and have sex. And obviously, because it's one of the most natural things you can do. 
despite the danger that was attributed to seeking out these locations and other people, men did it, and they did it a lot. And, <laughs> yeah. and that led on sometimes to relationship. We've got Dudley Cave and his partner Bernard, who lived together in London for a, a number of decades, quite happily. Um, even though in the early days, they did, um, he did share experiences of having to find the right sort of landlord to accept them because there will be questions asked of two men living together for any prolonged period. But they did manage to have a you know, relatively happy and stable home life. However, on the other side of the coin, we had uh, stories like David uh, Raphael here at the bottom, who married in the early 60s when he was 21, and he, his wife knew he was gay. He had four children with her, and then she ended up having an affair with his brother, and then they got a divorce... They went through a really bitter custody battle. He was publicly outed to all of his family. And then his children didn't want to have anything to do with him. So blackmail. Um, blackmail was a really big issue. And the criminal law amendment was actually popularly known as the Blackmailers Charter because it made it really easy for blackmailers to blackmail men, knowing that they couldn't come forward to the police through fear of being prosecuted themselves. And blackmail wasn't a new thing in, in our time period, but it was, it was very prevalent throughout all of the testimonies that I looked at, whether it was the men themselves or everyone seemed to know someone it would happen to. And we, like uh, in John Alcock's testimony we've got here, he burnt all the letters from his lovers because he was you know, afraid of divulging any information because I never knew what was going to happen if, if any of their friends would be arrested and then they would let their name slip or, you know, you had to be super, you know, so careful. And, you know, he said in his testimony, men were committing suicide, being blackmailed, robbed and beaten up. And Donald West said that caution was habitual and necessary when he, um, he, he was blackmailed himself, but he didn't wish to divulge any information on that because it seemed like listening to his testimony was quite an emotional subject for him. The biggest problem with in, in protecting men from this issue was the inconsistencies within the Metropolitan Police and their complete lack of, I don't know, understanding whatever they, you know, they just seemed to be awful when dealing with this kind of issue and, and it was really detrimental to the lives of a lot of the men that I looked at. However, that being said, um, we see the film of Victim in 1961 which um, was the first film in the English language to say the word homosexual in it, which was you know, a big thing in the 60s. And it shows that there is a move towards public acknowledgement of the issues surrounding blackmail because the, the main plot of the film is um, based around um, a man who's been blackmailed and he hangs himself in prison. And then one of his former lovers uncovers this racket of blackmail that's happening to this the guy that's hanged himself and all of people that he knows. So it does show that the tide was starting to turn in the 60s and people were starting to acknowledge that this was an issue that needed to be dealt with. So moving on to arrest, as I've mentioned briefly already, there were so many different types of arrest. Men didn't know when it was going to happen, where it was going to happen, whether it was going to be by police officers in uniform, plain clothes. It could be in your home. This document here is from the Metropolitan Police Archives here at the National Archives. And it's a list of 
things that were seized in the raid of Peter Wildblood's home from the, the case we talked about earlier. So they took his diaries, they took his letters, they took Christmas cards, and the list was massive. This is only like a third of it. They took, you know, suitcases full of personal items. They went through everything. Everything was detailed. And again, you know, the names here, the sections you see there that are redacted are names. So these are people that are implicated, implicated? Yeah, implicated in the in 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 this case as well because they they just had their names in in a letter that they sent to some guy once potentially. Um, so yeah, then like I said, plainclothes officers were used for intelligence gathering purposes and entrapment. So this is one of my favourite quotes: James Kirkup talking about mutual masturbation on the top deck of a bus. I had an orgasm around Pitwick, and it was only then that I noticed that a local plainclothes officer was sitting on the opposite side of the bus. And these pop up, these kind of little snippets pop up all over the testimonies that I've read. And again, we've got another quote from uh, Ronald right there on gay clubs in the 1950s. If you went to the toilet in one of those gay clubs, the police would be in there in plainclothes, and they would probably proposition you and see how you'd react. And immediately they thought they'd got you, they'd grab you. And again, just this again, sort of to reiterate, the, even across divisions in the Metropolitan Police, there was no like procedure of how to deal with homosexual offences. So people's homophobia and their own personal prejudices and opinions would influence the way in which they themselves, as police officers, treated homosexual men when they were arrested, and also the jurisdiction of the commissioners how they oversaw their officers and the level of freedom they gave their officers to do what they wanted depended, you know, varied greatly. And then finally, we come on to punishment and treatment. As we mentioned earlier, kind of they, they were evolving throughout the 50s and 60s because of this um, medicalization of um, homosexuality and it was being ever more thought that homosexuality was a disease rather than a crime. And we can see from this source here at the bottom, which was a survey in the Daily Mail taken in 1965, that 93% of people that were interviewed thought that homosexuals are in need of medical or psychological treatment. This did have implications for reform because some people use this as a, a basis by which to justify reform because they didn't see it as a crime anymore. They saw it as an illness. So you shouldn't punish somebody who's ill. However, this didn't necessarily mean that it made life any better or easier for the men that it, it was concerning. And as we mentioned earlier, the development of aversion therapies. So the first aversion therapy, I think, was tested in like the 1930s in America. And then steadily therapies were developed and varied and came, came over the pond. And men would check themselves into hospitals to have these therapies administered, or evermore it was used as a sentence instead of a prison sentence. So you would be forced to go to one of these units where this would happen or go to prison. And... Um, Ronald Wright shared in his testimony his experience of prison and he was arrested. He was arrested in his home, which was raided six months after he'd been part of a pornographic photo shoot. One day he was just sat there having a cup of tea with his partner and 
he was sentenced and went to prison and he said it was hell and not only did the other prisoners rape him regularly the warders also raped him regularly because he was gay where's the sense in that so there's a really great book actually about the development of it's based on oral history project that was done by tommy dickinson it's called curing queers which is about the development of aversion therapies and it he interviewed a lot of uh, mental health nurses, not just the people who had the, the therapies. Also, the during the Wolfenden Committee, a lot of medical evidence was given. So in the Wolfenden Committee, I probably should have said this earlier, um, they collected physical evidence, but they also interviewed a whole host of different people. So police officers, judges, gay men themselves who had been arrested, they used the proofs of Donald West's book. They also interviewed doctors, sociologists, to, to inform their recommendations. Then the government, as again I said earlier, the government placed greater emphasis on access to treatments and the development of treatments to rehabilitate offenders rather than... I think that's what they were trying to get out of it. That's what they were trying to get out of Wolfenden, that they would find that men needed treatment and that these treatments needed to be developed rather than homosexuality should be legalized in any way. So the title of our event today is A Step Forward. Was the Sexual Offences Act a step forward? And yes, it was. In, it was. Even though for the lives of men initially, things didn't immediately get better. In fact, I think things got worse for a lot of men and the rules changed, the goalposts moved but it was a platform for further reform and it allowed movements like the Gay Liberation Front to be formed and campaigns to continue. So, yeah, thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.